pray. Holy Father, we now come to you, and we want to hear from you, God. We want to hear what you have to say to us, how you want to address us from your word. And so I pray, Father, that your spirit would be here with us, that he would fill me with his presence, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me with your presence, with your words, with your life, with your passion, that I would speak your words, true words today, that bring great assurance and great comfort to all here who find themselves in a trial, difficulty, or anyone here who will someday. In other words, to everyone here. So God, help us, I pray, to have ears to hear what you have to, what you have to say and change us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter <clears throat> has been a book that, for me, has been um, amazing. I was thinking this morning, and, and I, I, I think if you have gotten a quarter of, out of First Peter of what I've gotten, you've been blessed. I think, I hope. It has radically, radically affected me. There are some themes that weave their way throughout 1 Peter. Right off the bat, though, in the, in the book, way back in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter tells us who he's talking to. He, he, he identifies his audience. After he identifies himself and says, I, Peter, a, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Then he says who he's writing to, and he says to those who are elect exiles. Enormous importance that we understand who Peter's writing to, what he calls them, who he identifies them as. He calls them elect exiles. Elect means that they were chosen by God, by God's grace, before the foundation of the world. And this amazing, gracious work of God where he elected or chose his children in love through Christ before the foundation of the world. But then he says they are elect exiles. Exiles. Now remember, Peter's writing to Christians who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. At the time that he's writing, especially Christians in modern day Turkey, that area, experiencing incredible hostility and persecution. And so he calls them exiles. They are strangers. They're foreigners. They are out of place. That's the people Peter's talking to. And though we may not find ourselves geographically, physically out of place and exiles in that way, in the way that they were, It certainly applies to us because we are not only chosen by God's grace, but as believers in Christ, the Bible is clear, the New Testament is very clear that we too are exiles. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We are refugees. That's the big word we hear nowadays, don't don't we? We are refugees in earth. We are out of place here. So Peter is addressing us as elect exiles. If we lose this identity of elect exiles, there's a lot of first Peter that makes no sense. Especially the two themes that seem to be walk hand in hand through the book of first Peter. One theme that we are to expect suffering and trials. Right off the bat. Verse 6. 
in this salvation you've received in Christ, you rejoice, though now, if necessary, you endure trials of various kinds. So Peter wants us to know, he weaves us throughout the book, that we are to expect suffering and difficulty, adversity, trials, affliction. Now it's important also to say that Peter does not romanticize suffering as though we are to, like the little child that just got a piece of cake and says, yes, mother, please, more. Like when we are experiencing affliction, we say, oh God, this is so great, just give me some more. No, he doesn't romanticize it. It's not in intri- suffering and trials and difficulties, not intrinsically good. And we know that because when we're in heaven, it'll be gone. The new heavens, the new earth, there'll be no more suffering, no more affliction, no more adversity. In fact, if there's anyone here today, I want to just tell you, I don't want you to leave today. If you came in aching and with pains in your body, I want you to get prayer before you leave today. Okay? We believe that God is a God who rescues the suffering. But Peter says, for Christians, for the exiles in this world, we are to expect suffering. But the other theme that walks hand in hand with that is the hope of eternal life in Christ. Eternal glory found in Christ. Eternal joy found in Christ. And again, the first words of Peter, 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power will receive it when Christ comes again. So Peter, in the midst of these two themes, wants to give Christians massive, massive, massive assurance. And here at the end of 1 Peter, in these closing lines of the book, Peter again wants to emphasize these two truths, these two themes that he's put in this book for us throughout, and he wants to give us incredible assurance. Peter wants every blood-bought Christian to walk in victory and joy and hope no matter what we face. Doesn't mean we just paste a plastic smile on our face and say everything's okay when it's not. It means that we have a hope in Christ that goes beyond this life and is bigger than any affliction we face. Peter wants our roots to be sunk deep in the soil of God's grace and this hope we have in Christ. So so no matter what storms pass over us, and we will have some, I mean, some here are walking through incredibly challenging storms, but no matter what storms pass over us, they will not take us down like that mighty oak, right? That's passed through many storms and finds itself with its roots sunk deep and strong in the ground. Here's the big idea from, the, from these verses. And I'm, I'm going to look almost just at verses 10 and 11. Here's what Peter wants to say to us. The God of all grace uses temporary trials and suffering as tools to make us fit for eternal glory. The God of all grace uses temporary trials and difficulties and sufferings, big and small, as tools to make us fit for His eternal glory. 
So here's how these verses show us this. First, the first part of verse 10, Peter relativizes suffering. I want to explain that for you because I don't want you to sound like he doesn't care about it, but he relativizes suffering. Then he magnifies or absolutizes God and God's grace and what is in store for us for eternity. Then we see how the God of all grace uses these relative sufferings to prepare us for eternal glory. So, first, suffering in this world, Peter shows us it's relative. It's relativized. He says this, after you have suffered a little while. A little while. Now notice first, Peter assumes Christians will experience some hardship in this fallen world. Right? He says after. He doesn't say if. He says after you have suffered a little while. Peter would agree with Eliphaz in Job 5.7 who said, Man is born for adversity just as surely as sparks fly upward. Right? And that's just the way that life in this fallen world is. Our bodies, after a certain time, begin to go downhill. Um, relationships fall apart. We experience hostility or rejection from others. There's difficulty, there's trials of all kinds, which is why Peter in chapter 1 verse 6 says trials of various kinds, big, small, physical, emotional, all kinds of trials. When Peter, when I say Peter relativizes suffering, don't hear me say and don't hear Peter say or the Bible say that your suffering is unimportant or that it's not truly painful. Peter is a realist. He knows that our sufferings are real and they're painful and they're hard, which is why he calls it elsewhere fiery trials. Relativize suffering and the fact that we will endure hardship doesn't mean we throw our hands up in the air and say, Kesara, Sarah, what will be will be. No, like last week, we saw that the devil is behind much of our sufferings. And what are we to do when the devil comes against us? He's like this lion seeking to devour our faith. We don't succumb to it, we resist it. We resist him. Here's the deal, though. Here's what Peter wants us to know about suffering. Here's how he relativizes it. He wants us to know that all, he wants you to know all of your suffering is temporary. It's all temporary, which is why he uses the phrase a little while. After you have suffered a little while. Now, Peter's purposely vague here, right? He's writing to, again, Christians experiencing intense persecution at the hand of the oppressive Roman Empire, under the leadership of Nero, who was a wicked, wicked man. And Peter is writing to some people who are receiving this letter from, from him and reading it for the first time. And no doubt, there are some who are hearing this the first time who are going to experience reprieve from suffering soon. You're going to come into a time of relative peace. There are others who are hearing this for the first time, back in the first century, who are hearing this, and they're going to suffer for a little time, and then they're going to be killed for their faith. And there are others who are hearing this for the first time, and they're going to experience hardship and difficulty under the Roman Empire, persecuted, chased, harassed, 
for a long time. Years and decades. And Peter wants them to know it's a little time. How can this be? How can this be? Peter wants his readers back then to know and he wants us to know that suffering in this life relative to eternity is a little time. This last week at youth group, I had the kids who were sitting around the table back here and I threw some paper on the table and some pens. I said, take five minutes and write down a definition or draw a picture, however you would describe eternity. Came back in five minutes, and there were some good definitions. And, but a couple of them had the same idea. They took this piece of paper, and they drew a line on it, and they put arrows in opposite directions and said, you know, I'm not sure if they wrote this, but forever that way and forever that way. And it's not a bad explanation of eternity, is it? Not, not perfect, but it's not bad. So imagine this wall right here. There's this straight line, and there's an arrow at the end of this line, of this side, and an arrow at the end of that side, and it goes forever in opposite directions. That's eternity. And then take a little dot like the size of a dime and place it right in the middle. That's the span of time called human history. And then take a little pen like this and make a little dot in that circle and that is your life. That's your life. makes you feel somewhat insignificant, huh? In a good way. Peter wants us to know that suffering in light of eternity is just a little time. James, emphasizing the the shortness of life, says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're like the mist over a pond in the morning. That before long, when the sun makes its way a little higher, is just, it's gone. That's what our life is like. The writer of Hebrews, writing to those who are suffering, he's writing to Christians who are feeling like they're about ready to abandon the faith because of the hostility they're experiencing. He's writing to sufferers. He wants to press into them the shortness of time until Christ comes. And he says this, yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul finds no pleasure in him. And Paul, I mean, is there anyone, I mean, in the Bible at least, who suffered like Paul? Shipwrecked, beaten to within an inch of his life a number of times, stoned to the point where his friends thought he was dead imprisoned, time without number, time couldn't count how many times, imprisoned, all of this for Christ. And Christ told Ananias, this Paul, this character, he's going to see how much he needs to suffer for my namesake. He suffered tremendously, yet Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, says the most remarkable thing. He says, all of my sufferings, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, if you, want to, if you want to, just like a list, it's right there. 10, 11, and 12. He says, in light of all of my sufferings, he call, in light of all of his sufferings, he calls them light and momentary. 
in comparison with eternity. The chorus of the New Testament writers press upon us and leave an indelible mark on our souls. James, the author of Hebrews, Paul, Peter, Jude, John. They press this upon us. Your trials, though painful and hard, are temporary. They will end. They are only, as Peter tells us, for a little while. Peter then turns our attention from our suffering, which he relativizes, right? He says a little while. He turns our attention from suffering and trials, which he says will last a little while, and he turns our attention to God. Here's what we sometimes do. When we're going through something hard, we absolutize the trial. We maximize how hard it is and we minimize God. Peter does the opposite. He relativizes suffering. It's a little while. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard, but it's a little while. And then he says, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace. After you suffered a little while, he wants to, he wants to direct our attention relativizing suffering, magnifying God. He describes God as the God of grace, but not the God just of some grace, but the God of all grace. Yes, Peter wants to take our attention and, and have our attention taken up with the God who doesn't just have one grace or two graces or a little bit of grace or a spoonful of grace or a bag of grace or even a truckload of grace, but he's the God of all grace. He has a storehouse, a never-ending storehouse of grace. He is the inexhaustible fountain of grace. And isn't that what we need when we are suffering, when we're going through something hard? When we're going through a trial or difficulty, we maximize the trial, we minimize God, we say this is enormous and and we we think sometimes or we even may, may say sometimes, where are you God? Like the psalmist. The psalmist teach us to talk this way. In the anguish of our heart. Have you forsaken me? And Peter says, No, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace. His grace flows to us through Christ, who was crucified, buried, and raised for us. The devil whispers in our ear, are you even a Christian? When the rejection is raw and the pain is searing and the loss is absolutely unexplainable, we are tempted to think that God isn't for us. And so what comfort, what comfort Peter wants to give us, what assurance he wants to give us, what a boost for our souls Peter wants to give us to direct our attention to the God of All grace. And if you are here today and you find yourself in some unexplainably hard thing, the Spirit wants to direct your attention to the God of all grace who says, my my conduit of grace, whereby grace flows to you through Jesus, has not been backed up 
right? The rivers of grace have not been dammed off so that it can't come to you. My grace is flowing towards you even now. He's the God of all grace. And when I, when I read this, the God of all grace, I couldn't help but think of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, where um, Paul describes the God of all grace and his lavish grace toward us in Christ. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6 says this, to the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then the next six, seven, eight verses just expound grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that has been given to us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing provided for us to the praise of the glory of God's grace. So Peter relativizes suffering and then he maximizes the God of all grace. And then he turns our attention to, he doesn't turn our attention away from the God of all grace, but he hones in on the activity of the God of all grace and what he has done for us. Just just one example, just one thing, but it's enormous and it's huge and it's glorious. Peter wants to remind us of the action of the God of all grace toward us. So after you've suffered a little while, The God of all grace, listen to this, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. If you are a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ and he is your only hope for salvation, this is saying that the God of all grace called you. Right? The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. What does that mean? He called you. Well, the Bible talks about God's call in two ways. It talks about God's call in more of a general way, the general call of God. Right? Where the gospel goes out in just a general way and people are exhorted to repent and believe. When I go down to Bethel Mission once a month, and preach to these 60 or 70 or 80 men, they need Christ. I don't want to give them tips on how to have a happier day tomorrow. I want them to be saved. So I I preach the gospel every time. And at the end, I say, in, in in so many words, not the same every time necessarily, but repent, believe in Christ, and be saved. That's the general call of a preacher or of someone who speaks God's word. We speak on God's behalf and we give this general call of the gospel and tell people to repent and believe. This call Peter is talking about, I think, is different. It's what theologians call 
effectual calling. So you have the general call and then you have the effectual call. The general call, right? When you, when you call people to repent and believe, you might speak the gospel clearly, right? You say repent, believe, and be saved and you might have two or three people or ten or none respond. This is the effectual call where God overcomes the hardness of hearts and makes men and women and children willing to come to Christ. It's hard to find a better definition of this than the one that's given to us in in an old confession called the Westminster Shorter Confession. It asks the question, what is effectual calling? And then here's the answer. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Peter's saying, the God of all grace did that in you. You may remember the time you believed in Christ. Maybe you were watching something on television or maybe you were talking with your parents and they were telling you about Jesus and you knew that you wanted to have him as your savior. And you prayed and, or you believed, you repented and believed. You, you remember that time. Many of you probably do. Well, effectual calling means that God, there's, there was more going on than just your parents and you. A lot more going on. Worlds more going on. The God of all grace was at work. The God of all grace was at work in your heart, right? Making the message clear at work in your heart, changing your heart, taking out the heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh so that when you heard it, you saw your sin, you saw Christ, and you believed. Thomas Watson puts it this way. God so calls as he allures us. He does not force, doesn't, or he's not dragging anyone to Jesus, but he draws. The freedom of the will is not taken away, but the stubbornness of it is conquered. Right? The stubbornness of our hearts and wills is conquered by God's grace so that we willingly come to Christ. And aren't you glad that God did this? If not, you would still be unwilling to come to Christ. If he had not done this, and and there might be some here, you don't really exactly remember when you believed in Christ, you just know that you do. And amen. But if there had not been a time when the Spirit of God overcame and conquered your will, the stubbornness of your will, you would still refuse Christ today. Peter uses this word several times in this book. He says that we are called, 1 Peter 1.15, to be holy. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says we are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In chapter 3, verse 9, it says, we are called to obtain a blessing and to be a blessing to others. So this calling is the Holy Spirit drawing us to salvation in Christ and calling us to all that salvation entails, holiness of life, 
right? out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light, to obtain a blessing and to be a blessing. And what Peter says in this passage before us today in five, chapter 5, verse 10, called to his eternal glory in Christ. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is absolutely astounding. It's like the Holy Spirit called you and led you by the hand to Christ and now you are called to eternal glory. Your future in Christ, regardless of what your future here in the temporary looks like now, your future in Christ could not be better. It couldn't be better. And that ought to get us more excited. I'm not saying, you don't need to jump up and down, okay? I'm not looking for anything. But we ought to be thrilled by that. The Christians who first heard that, no doubt were. Elect exiles, living in a foreign land, being hunted down for their lives. Eternal glory in Christ sounded pretty good. This, when it, when it talks about eternal glory in Christ, this is the consummation of our salvation. When Jesus comes and makes all things new. The Bible says that you and I will receive new bodies, glorified bodies, that will never, ever decay again. Never get old, never get injured, never get sick, ever again. And we will be perfected in Christ forever. We will worship God. We will enjoy God and each other and all that is in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever, perfectly without any stain of corruption or sin. Forever. So, I don't know if you see what Peter's doing here. Peter wants us to compare suffering for a little while with eternal glory in Christ. Suffering is hard. It's painful. And a little while sometimes feels like a long time. But it's a little while. And what awaits us is eternal glory in Christ. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8.18 when he says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. That's, what, that's, where, that's where Paul's going in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says, when he calls his, his afflictions momentary and light. He says, because these things are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's not even a fair comparison. So, minimizes trials, maximizes God, turns our attention to the grace of God where he's called us to eternal glory in Christ. And then Peter directs our attention to God's personal care for us. The God of all grace has personal care for us in our suffering. Let me just read the entire, entirety of verse 10. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to this, will himself restore, confirm, 
strengthen and establish you. Will himself do these things. I'm not sure why, but the word himself two days ago just was like, wow. I love how Peter uses it. It's a reflexive pronoun or sometimes called an emphatic pronoun. To reflect back on the object of the sentence, in this case, it's the God of all grace. Or to emphasize that he himself will do this. If, I, if I'm talking to Sabrina and I say, you know, if, if, the, if, the car breaks, if the car breaks down, you call me and I myself will come. I wouldn't yell like that, but <laughs> what am I doing? I'm emphasizing I'm not going to send somebody else. I will come. I myself will come. And that's what Peter's doing here. When, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ will himself. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will restore you. He will mend everything that's broken. All will be put right. All will be put back together. Right? You're broken. Heart, you're broken. Body, he will put you back. He will repair you. He is the, uh, he is the ultimate repairman. The God of all grace himself will do it. He will confirm you. He will make your wobbly legs firm and strong. When the winds of adversity come, sometimes we feel like we're shaking in the wind. He himself will come and confirm you. The God of all grace will make you strong and firm to withstand. He will strengthen you. He will give you a brave heart. He will give you a courageous heart. The God of all grace himself will do this. He will not send another. He himself will. When when he says himself, it makes me think, you know, God, even though our trials and adversity are tools that he uses, he takes our hardship personally. He's not indifferent to it. He's not indifferent to our tears and our aches and our pains. He's not indifferent to it. He will establish you. He will sink your roots deep in his grace. The God of all grace himself will do it. But when will he do it? After you've suffered a little while. Not before. Apparently, this is part of God's program. And I take this, along with verse 11, to mean that trials are God's tools. They are tools of the God of all grace to prepare us for eternal glory in Christ. Verse 11 says, To him be the dominion forever and ever. To, To the God of all grace be the dominion forever and ever. 
God uses our difficulties, our adversity, our trials. He uses these things to restore us himself, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us, and to fit us for eternal glory. Here's what Richard Sibbs, he's a Puritan from the 1700s. He says, The winter prepares the earth for spring. So do afflictions, sanctified, prepare the soul for glory. Peter's addressed this before. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice. In eternal glory you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, same words, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it, though it perishes, excuse me, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on these verses, says in only the way he can say it. He says, it is of no use our hoping, our hoping that we shall be well-rooted if no March winds have passed over us. The young oak cannot be expected to strike its roots so deep as the old one. Those old gnarlings on the roots and those strange twistings of the branches all tell of many storms that have swept over the aged tree. But they are also indicators of the depths into which the roots have dived. And they tell the woodman that he might as soon expect to rend up a mountain as to tear up that oak tree by the roots. We must suffer a while, then we shall be established. I love that line. It tells the woodman, it tells the the man who wants to take that tree down. You'd have a better chance of taking up that mountain right there than taking up this oak tree by the roots. Peter says in verse 12, this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God, right? This is God's grace in Christ. Stand firm in it. Amen? Stand firm in this grace that the God of all grace has so richly lavished upon us. This is the true grace of God and the way to eternal glory. John Piper says, Suffering is temporary. Pleasure in Jesus is eternal. And God will see to it that every single one of his children will experience pleasures forevermore found in Christ. Psalm 16, you have made known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I got to the end last night. I was just, I was thinking about this. I was like, how do we end this? I was like, verse 11 ends it for us. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what amen means? So be it 
or truly, when Jesus says truly, truly, it's amin, amin, it's true, yes. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this amazing book by which you have formed so many important things in my heart and I trust in many hearts here today. Father, I pray that you give each one of us grace this morning to have our spiritual eyes open to see the magnitude of eternal glory in Christ. To see you, God, the God of all grace, on our side, for us, now, with us, forever, by your Spirit. Not indifferent to our sufferings. You magnified, you absolutized, right now, even this moment, Holy Spirit, come and help, I pray. Suffers in this room, those going through anguishing heartache. And in the light of your grace and your power and your dominion, I pray you'd help just to, that the sufferings and trials would be relativized in their proper place It's for a little while. God, I do pray that there would be some here today that you would rescue by your might and power out of their difficulty. And in the meantime, God, we wait in confidence that after we've suffered a little while, you, the God of all grace, who called us to your eternal glory in Christ, will yourself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And to you belong the glory, and to you be dominion forever and ever. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.